0: All right, good morning, friends. We're going to continue this morning through 1 Corinthians. If you don't mind turning it over to 1 Corinthians 9. If we recall, last week in chapter 8, <clears throat> Paul is laying out uh, a concept to the Corinthians. Remember, very dysfunctional church, a lot of self-exaltation. They're using their spiritual giftings to draw attention to themselves. They're suing each other over some sort of financial matters. People are uh, coming to their potlucks and getting drunk at the potluck and then uh, keeping all their food to themselves and shaming poor people. Kind of a church if you showed up to, you might be like, yeah, I don't want to be here. Uh, But there's this faithful gal, whose name is Chloe, and she writes a letter to Paul. And she writes and says, hey, Paul, we're having some issues. Uh, however she wrote that, we don't know. And so this is his response uh, to her uh, alerting to the fact that there's a lot of bad stuff going on. Uh, Paul starts the letter by showing that uh, the Corinthians have great hope. He starts with a huge uh, commend, you know, commendation to how God's working in their hearts and how God loves them and you know, all these different things. So it's a very encouraging letter, even though it's so corrective. One of the constant themes through the whole thing that he starts in chapters 1 and 2 is that there are two wisdoms. As as we've been talking about this whole time, wisdom, the proper application of knowledge. right? So it's not just knowing something, it's knowing it and properly applying it in life. And so Paul says there's a wisdom that comes from inside of us. It comes from our fallen nature, that part of us that is uh, sinful, that part of us that wants to conquer and demand or wants to... um, Exalt self, or you know, whatever. I think we're all different in a sense, and we different. We struggle with different sins, but I think most of us would agree that intrinsically there's a part of us that we don't ask for, but it's there, and it causes us to do things and to think in ways that are not of God. And so Paul says, there's a wisdom that can come out of that. We can apply the knowledge that we have that will cater to that nature inside of us. It'll, it calls the Bible calls it the sin nature, uh, the old man the fallen nature, uh, the dead flesh, those are all biblical references for that old nature. Then it says that we have a new nature that was created in Christ, that when Christ died at the cross, and paid for sin, and rose again from the dead, that he rose and he created what's called the new man in Christ, and that we can identify with Christ's resurrection, that we have power because of his resurrection, and it's given to us through his Holy Spirit, that we're told sealed, uh, literally signet-ringed himself, to us, that we've been sealed for the day of salvation. So we're constantly, maybe you've noticed in your life, in a battle where who are we gonna yield to? Are we gonna yield to the Spirit? Are we gonna yield to, as Jesus say, uh, taught us, to take up our cross daily and follow Him? Or are we going to insist on ourselves? So in chapter eight, it kind of comes to this head where Paul's making a point, and it wouldn't be an issue for us, but he makes a point about meat sacrifice to idols. Now, most of us probably did not get saved out of Judaism like they did, or the other side saved out of polytheism, right? So you have Greek and Roman polytheism, Zeus, uh, you know, all the, the, the uh, Aphrodite, Apollos, right? Different times for different gods. Uh, and so you had that ancient world, people getting saved out of that. And then you had the Jews that were getting saved also, because in, in the, they were spread around uh, the Roman Empire in the ancient world, right? And so because of meat sacrificed to idols, we don't really probably think about it, but there were uh, coming out of Judaism, there were people that were not comfortable, even though they were set free from the law through the blood of Christ, they weren't comfortable eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And you also had other people that had gotten saved out of polytheism, uh, and so they were uncomfortable. They didn't feel like it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to their former objects of worship. And so Paul says, look, we all have a different understanding. We observe, he says, that everybody sees things or understands things differently. So if you have a brother or a sister in Christ, and the example is meat sacrificed to idols, and they see you in the temple, in an idol's temple, eating that meat, and it stumbles them, then we need to be able to say no to ourselves and not insist on eating that meat. That it's okay to curb my liberty, even though, and he says, we know That an idol is nothing in this world. It's got no power. It doesn't mean anything. The example I use, if you you go to Thai food or something like that, you see a little Buddha and there's a banana in front of it. You're not supporting idols if you go have your chicken pad thai, three star, you know, whatever it is you do. That's perfectly fine because the idols are nothing. They have no power. You're not subscribing to that. But some people maybe can't. They have a hard time with that. So if they see us doing that and then they decide that they're also going to eat, You might be eating and your conscience doesn't bother you at all. They decide to eat, but it bothers their conscience, and it crushes them inside. And so we can actually cause harm to people's faith by insisting on our rights. And again, this is a very challenging message, isn't it? Because our nature and our society really brings us up with the idea that I do what I want and nobody has say over that. And if you try to have say over that, then you're out of my life because you're limiting my freedom. And so I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care. And the hard part of that is that Paul says that if we take that mindset, which is societally correct, which is in the Constitution of the United States of America, if we take that aspect and we apply that to our life, we no longer are loving the brethren. John expands on that for us, and this is, this is tough, but it's kind of like if you go to the doctor and you get a, you get a bad diagnosis, Right? You don't get upset at the doctor. You say, how can we fix it? Right? Well, John's got kind of a, a rough diagnosis for us because he says in his letter back to the churches in 1 John, he says, if you despise, which means you don't have esteem, you don't care, you don't, you don't afford value to your brother or sister in Christ, he says, you don't actually love God. So that's rough, isn't it? He says that if we say, I love God, if we say, I know him, like we have an intimate relationship, but I look at my brother or sister and I refuse to forgive them, or I, I just despise them, that I think they're stupid, I think they're lame, I don't want to be around them, I've judged them, i measure measured them, he says the reality of our situation is we actually don't know God at all. He's not saying we're not saved, he's saying we don't have an intimate relationship with him. So then if that's our diagnosis, and we have, to, we have to call a spade a spade, right? If that's where we're at in our life, where we're despising God's people, then we have to say, okay, my problem is I don't know God. But that gives us great hope, right? Because the answer is that I can know him, that I can turn, that I can confess, that I can give those thoughts and ideologies to God, and I can move past that and begin to know him. So that's what Paul talked about in detail in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he's going to further talk about it. It's kind of split into two ideas, but they come under the same umbrella. And it's it's continuing the idea of curbing our rights for the sake of others. In this case, it's financial rights, which really makes things uncomfortable, right? So we, as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to see how Paul is addressing and responding to things that were happening in Corinth. This is really important for the entire letter. He's responding to people that were making accusations against him, and you'll see why we know that, because it's in the, uh, our portion today. He's responding to people that are making the accusations, and he's showing them from life and from Scripture How they're wrong to make them. Does that make sense? So we'll get stuck in here. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? Who serves, a soldier, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while he is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of the sharing of the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material harvest from you? If others have right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So 16 rhetorical questions, which if you're reading along, I'm sure you saw the gist of it. And so we're not going to cover each question or try to make some cool allegory for each question or anything like that. We're just going to point out that clearly Paul is saying something, right? He is saying that ministers for the gospel, people that labor for Christ, have the right to make a living from that labor, which feels really weird, right? Because I'm saying that. And it's like, like I, I'm not trying to prove a point this morning. <laughs> all right? If you're new with us, Sorry, you just came on the day we're on 1 Corinthians 9. Next week we'll be in 1 Corinthians 10. But what is he saying here? Because this is important. Remember, and I want to draw attention again, he's responding to them. Did you notice in verse 3 he says, for my defense. So he is speaking to people that were making some sort of accusation about how he and Barnabas were living. It's important to note too, and I want to say this from the beginning, it's not that Paul never received money in the service of the gospel. In fact, if we were to turn to, to uh, Acts 18, we won't for time's sake, but in Acts 18, in verse 5, Paul is already in Corinth. And some months later, uh, Timothy and uh, somebody else, Titus? No, Timothy, Silas. Timothy and Silas show up. And it says that once they showed up, that Paul devoted himself completely, meaning full time, to the preaching of the gospel. So in this context when we're reading, it's important to note that Paul is not saying he never was paid by the ministry for the ministry. Does that make sense? What he's writing and responding to is that he never took anything from the Corinthians. He never made money from the Corinthian church. So that might help us a little bit when we're reading it. Otherwise, it might sound like Paul saying, you know what, especially in the later verses, yeah, it's okay to do that, but I never did, and now I boast about the fact I didn't. He was taking money from either from Titus or excuse me from Silas and Timothy or we know that there was a gift at one point from Macedonia so he was being paid by the church just not the Corinthian church and we'll talk about why that was but if we start off here in verse 1 he's making some points am i not free this is clearly from chapter 8 the same word that's uh, that's translated free uh, is used in chapter 8 multiple times to talk about it's, it's translated as rights it's translated as free or freedom and he's saying, do I not also have rights? That he, as a servant of Christ, does he not also have rights? And then he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He's responding to some sort of a challenge that he is not an apostle. Remember, an apostle is uh, used for multiple people, not just the 12. Uh, apostle is used for Barnabas. Um, it's used for other New Testament people that weren't capital A Apostles, witnesses necessarily to the resurrection and personal interaction with Jesus. In Acts 14 14, Barnabas is also called an apostle, uh, small a. He was, he, we have no recording of him being numbered with the 12 or anything like that. But Paul is making the point as an apostle, it means someone who's commissioned by another, like for a mission or for a task. So he's saying to them, Am I not an apostle? And he actually makes this point here. He makes it in 2 Corinthians, where he says in verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others. So he says, look, other people may say I was not commissioned for them. Other people may say that I I didn't go to them. But he says, uh, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Again, that word seal, it means signet, like a signet ring. Like, you know, like, oh, I don't know, any decent castle movie. At some point, some king will whip out a... Uh, you know, an envelope and they'll drip some wax on it and he'll put his ring on it. There's a signet ring. That's literally the meaning of the word. And so he's saying, you guys are my signet. You're, You're my sign that I am an apostle. Because he went there, he labored for 18 months. That church was in existence because God used Paul to do it. So what he's telling them, because there's some accusers, people there in Corinth that are accusing him, people that are making accusations and, and uh, are upset with him, whatever it might be, we don't know the full scope of it, he's making a point to them through logic and reality where he's saying, look, you guys go and gather together every Sunday because God used me to do that. So if uh, you cannot deny my apostleship because you guys are the signet, the sign, of what I'm doing. He's going to go on in verse 3. He says, this is my defense to all that sit in judgment of me. And then he starts listing things. Do we not have the right to eat and drink food? Again, what is our context? He's not just making like, hey, don't I have the right to not starve? He's talking about, don't I have the right to eat and drink food on your dime? on, on, On what you guys are giving as gifts. That's the whole context of 1 Corinthians 9. Now in the end, he's going to say, I didn't take advantage of that. And we'll talk about why. But in this case, he's saying, don't I have that right? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas? It seems that, uh, pretty clear that, that at some point, Peter was ministering there in Corinth. We don't have a timeline. It's not mentioned in Acts that we know of uh, or anything like that. But you see, for example, in chapter 1, Peter is one of the people that kind of a faction is, is uh, formed around. People start to identify with Peter as kind of the, the vicar, as it were, kind of this... They like his teaching. They like his philosophy or whatever it might be because they use Apollos, they use Barnabas, or excuse me, they use Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus. And those are the four factions that kind of form there in Corinth. So he's, Paul is noting back, he's saying, look, just like you guys assisted Peter and just like you've assisted the Lord's brothers uh, before James is slain, he says, just like you're doing that, don't Barnabas and I, don't we have the same rights? Don't we get that privilege? He's going to go on there, uh, verse 6, Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to work for a living? So for some reason, they picked Paul and Barnabas as people that they didn't think should be supported by the work. They didn't think should be supported by their church. So then he's going to go on with other examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? So what soldier buys his own gun and buys his own body armor, buys his own uniform, no soldier, right? The government pays for that, the person that's commissioning him. He goes on, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the grapes? Who, who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? And you can see he's just making the point, who invests labor in anything, in any category of life, and doesn't have the right to expect, basically, compensation for that? Who does that? And the answer is no one. Now, verse 9 gets a little weird, doesn't it? It does to me. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. So he takes this one line and one law out of the Levitical law from the Old Testament, and he says, hey, God said don't muzzle the ox when he's uh, basically running the mill. So don't put a, a, a muzzle, don't stop him from eating when he's walking around the mill and grinding your corn or your, your wheat or whatever it is he's grinding up. And, he, and then Paul says, well, clearly God wasn't talking about the ox. And I don't know about you, but you kind of go, he wasn't? I mean, I feel like he was because <laughs> he said don't muzzle the ox. So kind of as a little bit of side note, a side application here, this is important. It's it's a very popular Bible study or yeah, Bible study or Bible style to try to allegorize allegor, allegorize everything. Have you noticed that? And 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 I'm not trying to mock it or be down on it, but you have to be really careful with allegory. Um, like if you try to do too much allegory in the parables, for example, then they can say all sorts of stuff. You know, the the, the unfaithful servant has about 15 different allegorizations of what it means. Right, And everybody is right. But yet, that's not necessarily the point of the parables. So how do we know that Paul, how does Paul know and how does he pull this out of the Old Testament other than that we know he was personally uh, educated, as it were, by Jesus in the desert? There's a couple ways that we can be careful as Bible students. Number one is, does anybody's Bible here have quotes or that line, don't muzzle the ox, in, in caps? Does anybody's Bible have that? So anytime you see that in your Bible, that means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay. So anytime you're reading and then you see something and it's all in capital letters or there's quotes around it, depending on your Bible and, and the, the um, uh, not the producer, but the publishing or whoever it is, that depending on how they do it. So they're quoting the Old Testament. So when you want to know context around an Old Testament quote, because Paul quotes it the Old Testament constantly, and so does Jesus, so does James, so does Peter. It's really important to go back and to read the quote that they're quoting from. And, and you might read it and it'd be a little bit different than what you're reading there, and it has to do with uh, uh, translations and things like that. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about it. We, we could talk about that more later if you'd like. But to go back and to read, like, for example, the whole chapter that the quote is in, Maybe even the chapter before and the chapter after. Otherwise, you can come up with some really, really weird ideas about why the quote is there or what God is saying. Certain things like the fact that, uh, you know, multiple times in Romans, Isaiah is quoted. And it, and it says, and he quotes him when he says, so that my people seeing, they would not see. And you think, oh man, God is purposely blinding his people and then he blames them? No, if you go back and read what happened, God blinded the prophets. Because the prophets wouldn't listen to him. So it was a completely different context than just some sort of like weird, uh, I don't know, punishment or something like that, some sort of persecution that God was putting on his people and then blaming them. So in this case, if you go back and you look at Deuteronomy 25, which is where the quote is from, what you'll see is this quote is very bizarrely in the middle of a bunch of laws about relationships. This quote isn't it has it's nowhere near any any farming laws, it's nowhere near any camp laws, it's nowhere near any food laws, it's nowhere near any livestock laws, right? 619 Levitical laws. It's not near any of laws that have to do with anything except for how we interact with one another. Which is interesting because the concept is very clear, right? That a person should be able to partake of the fruits of their labor. So if you go back into Deuteronomy 25, most scholars believe and it makes sense that essentially this quote, don't muzzle the ox, that that actually is kind of a a vernacular of the day, that it's a quote of the day that people would have understood what it meant. And so it's included in the law by Moses to point out that when we're in relationship with each other, that there should be a fruitfulness, that we should be able to enjoy one another as we listen to the law and as we embrace God in our lives. So when Paul makes this point and he just says, hey, look, God was not just talking about oxen, was he? He's talking about us. It's not that he just found something in the Bible and thought, or in the Old Covenant, I should say, and thought, oh, that's cool, I'll just use that. It's that he's literally looking at context and he's making a point. The law, the logic, the world, everything around us points to the idea that it's perfectly just for a person to reap from what they've sown. Does that make sense? So as we keep going in this, is after the law, then he gives a couple other. He says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much to reap material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Talking about himself and Barnabas. So he asked that question, is it okay for this? Now this I think can be uncomfortable because for, for, for pretty much from the inception of Christianity until this very day, you have people that abuse the church, that abuse religion, that abuse whatever, for money, right? I mean, you have how many times have you seen over and over and over again where somebody gets caught embezzling money, or somebody gets caught, uh, I don't know, just misusing money? We can come up with a million examples, right? And you go, oh, I knew it. And how much cynicism has been created in the world and even amongst Christians because of constant failure of, of individuals or of churches in their handles and how they've, they've handled money. And so when we come to something like this, it can be a little bit weird where Paul is saying, look, people that serve at the church in a capacity that's full-time deserve to be compensated. And is this supported other places? And so I want to look at a couple verses. Uh, Jesus, we won't look there, but Jesus uh, is quoted by Paul. Luke uh, 10 is quoted by Paul in First Timothy uh, chapter 5. So if you don't mind, let's just flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And because this is kind of weird, or maybe I'm just making it weird. That could be. I just want you guys to know I'm perfectly content with my compensation. I get paid to be here. It wasn't always that way, but the church has grown. And so I get, I get a, a wage from the church. Luke gets a wage from the church. Dana gets a wage from the church. And, and a couple things about that. Number one, I don't decide my wage. The elders do. Uh, I've never put input in for my wage. Uh, they decide what I make, and, and I'm quite content. So uh, I'm not trying to share this in any kind of way where I think I should get more or anything like that. Uh, I'm perfectly happy. Um, but, uh, but just to say that this is how God says it should work. So you can do it that way if you will. I also want to make a, a comment real quick because uh, we don't talk about this for much. We only talk about money when uh, it comes up in the Scriptures. And so uh, at different times, people have asked, like, hey, how come you guys don't take an offering? We don't take an offering uh, because we're just not comfortable with it. We started off taking an offering uh, 14 years ago when the church started, and we would pass the the plate, and we had the the purple bags, you know? Uh, And so we'd pass the purple bags, and it it was nothing. I was never comfortable with it. And I'm not throwing shade or making accusation on any church that does that. Okay, so I want to say that out loud. I'm saying that I personally, I've been to three I've been regularly to three churches in my whole life. The one I got saved at for 11 years, Coastline for five years where I came on staff, and then this one for 15 years that my wife and I started. So I, I, the, my original thing that I saw was a box in the back. okay? And when we started, and we did pass the, the, I say plate, it wasn't a plate, it was like these weird bags, they were like wood and then they had, I don't know, they were like plush, anyway. So he passed the royal purple bag of money. I don't know, it feels <laughs> something out of like Dungeons and Dragons or something. I don't know. But, so it's, you know, they're passing it around. And, and the, the problem with that is, and not everybody's this way. Okay, I'm probably the weird one. But the problem with that is, when I would sit in church and it would, it, would, it would come past me, I would feel compelled to give. I would feel like, and it wasn't from a good place. It was from a place of like, I could have given my whole tithe the week before, but here it is again, and I'll throw like two more dollars in, because I don't want people to be like, that cheap guy just passed it. Right? So, again, just weird thinking. And so there's, this is just not a model that, that, we, that I was super into. And so I went to the elders and said, hey, would you be willing to, uh, to just have a box in the back? And people can give as they want to give. Uh, there's no pressure. There's no weirdness. And I understand, and, I, and I've, I've talked to many pastors that do pass it. And they say, oh, well, it's part of the worship. And it's, it's people's opportunity to give to the Lord. And I get that. And, that, and that's fine. Um, and I have no qualms with that. I just see it differently. I see it as we want every interaction for you guys to be between you and Jesus. Uh, I don't know who gives. I don't count any of the money. We have a, a couple of people that do that. Um, and, so, and I never want to know who gives. And, and so it's, it's counted with two people, it's always held with two people. Once it's accounted for, it goes into a bag and we take it to the bank and it just goes into that, like, I don't know, monstrous, like, chum, 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 chum. You know, you put it in, seems pretty secure. And that's how it works. If anybody's ever interested in the finances, we have a Dana does our bookkeeping and we have a whole spreadsheet. We'll be glad to show uh, folks the finances. You know, we don't have anything to hide in that area. Uh, so that's, that's how it's done here. And it's, it's why we do uh, the way we do it, just so that people can um, have some privacy between them and the Lord. And some people say, well, that's not how it's done in the Bible. Well, the funny thing about how it's done in the Bible, there's only one illustration in the New Testament. The Old Testament was a box in the back in the temple, or you brought a sacrifice to the priests. The New Testament, the only example you have is in Acts, and that's where people came up and laid it at the feet of the apostles. So if you want to go full Bible example, we can do that. But I, for one, would feel extremely weird, right? Extremely weird. So for now, if you guys are cool with it, or honestly, even if you're not, we're just going to keep a box in the back, and you're welcome to give as the Lord leads you. And if you're new here, don't give unless you want to. Like, we don't want your money. God is good. He provides for us. Um, I don't mean that in an offensive way, but we're not after people's money. God has always provided for us, and, and he's always been very kind to us. So it's with that, I want to kind of give a little bit of that background, a personal background, so that when we read these things, it may not they don't come away like it's some sort of assault or begging or something like that. So 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. This is Paul's direction to Timothy, who's a pastor. He says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work at, uh, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So he quotes the law and he quotes Jesus. And then he goes on from there about accusations against elders. But he makes this point, he says, look, P- elders, the word there is presbyterios, it's just the, those among you that are uh, mature, um, there can be an argument about years and ages, but, but, but mature Christians. He says those people, they're worthy of double honor. Now, that doesn't mean like double honor, like you should get your own parking space or you should get a title or something like that. That's not the issue. It, it, in other places, it's translated price and it's, uh, or um, wealth. It's just money. He's talking about money. And so he says a, a church is supposed to take care of the people that are helping it. We're doing fine. So this is not me trying to say I need a raise. I am perfectly fine. I'm just saying that this is the biblical outlook on how it's supposed to work. And part of the problem is you'll, I remember years ago, because the church I went to, the one I got saved into, I went to for 11 years, turned out that the guy who started the whole thing was basically embezzling money. And he embezzled money for like 20 years. And after it all came out, they had estimated the embezzled right around between 900 and like 1.1 million dollars, and he had bought like a like a place in Greece and so forth, and and so all these people obviously were upset, and it was it it was a um, a grievous process, Uh, and so because of that, well, because of that, uh, and, and experiences like that, it can generate. Some real weirdness about it and and just how it works. I'm going to keep going. I was going to, sorry, I was going to say some other stuff, but I'm not. So, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, Look, we should be taking care of them. He says, Barnabas and I also have this right. Then he goes on and he says in verse 15, his last example in 13 through 14 is the temple, the the law, the way originally given by God was that the the servants and the ministers, the priests of the temple, ate from the temple. Verse 15, but I have not used any of these rites. Remember, who is he writing to? To Corinth. He's not saying he has never done it because we know he did. He's writing back to them and he's saying, I never used these rites from you. Does that make sense? From Corinth. Um, So he says, uh, I have never used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Now, this is interesting. What is he saying? Is he saying, I've never taken anything, and I never would, so that I can tell everybody I've never taken anything? Uh, Yes and no. What he's communicating here is, he says, when I was there among you, for whatever reason, and we probably know the reason, he says, I didn't take anything from you. I didn't get paid by you. Now, remember Corinth, when Paul was there, it was, in a sense, a church plant, right? It wasn't an established church. He was there for 18 months. He went into the synagogues. He he went to different places. He preached the gospel. People got saved. And then this church got built up. That's what happened when he was there. And so he says, since when I was there, I never took any money from you, ever. I didn't do that. But then he says, I wouldn't do that now. I would rather die than do that now. And in part, it's because of these accusations that are being levied against him. Remember, he's responding to the accusations that we don't know exactly what they are. But they're apparently about some sort of impropriety or the fact that he wasn't worthy or he's not really an apostle, whatever it might be. Somebody has beef with Paul in Corinth, and now they're spreading that. And so Paul is just writing back and saying, no, I am an apostle. And what I'm writing to you is valid. And, and you can make accusation against me, but you have to understand, remember, I didn't take any money from you. He's going to tell us in a second. The emphasis is because he wants to give the gospel for free, right? So he goes on there and says, "I didn't do that. I would rather die. I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, allow anyone there to to make the accusation, an accurate accusation, that I did this for money." That's what he's saying. you see this with Abraham when he when he goes to Melchizedek and uh, or uh, when he when he when he frees uh, Lot and, and the uh, the kings and whatnot. And then there's like, they try to give him a bunch of money, and he says, "No, I'll never let it be said that." That uh, you made Abraham rich. This happens multiple times in the scriptures. And Paul's doing the same thing here. So he goes on from there. He says, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not, the trust committed to me. So he's moving on from there. He says, look, honestly, at the end of the day, I preach the gospel. I don't have, I can't boast. He says, because I'm compelled Some of your translations may say, I do it out of necessity, or I do it because I have to, depending on your translation. So this is a bit debated. Is Paul saying that he, because he has a calling on his life from God, that there really is no place to boast because God has gifted him, God has called him, God's done everything, and now he's just walking in that? Or is he making reference to his salvation where he gets knocked over, goes blind, are you familiar with that? And Jesus says to him, uh, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And the reference there, kicking against the goats, is an ox in a cart and basically poking an ox in the, in the behind to get it to go with the cart. And if it starts to buck, that you hold the goat down and it bucks its leg right into your sharp stick. Essentially, that's what the goat is. So the inference there is, Paul, I've been trying to get a hold of your life for a long time and you keep bucking against me. And you're persecuting me because of what you're doing with these, what you're doing to my people, right? And so it could be a reference that Paul's saying, like I can't boast because God was so merciful to me. He really brought me to a place where I was completely broken, and, and revealed Himself to me, and now I get to walk with Him. You know, whatever whatever it might be one way or another, whether it's based on calling or based on how God saved him, he makes a point. And he says, I can't. The fact that I was with you, and the fact that God did this. And the fact that the gospel went out, he said, I can't boast in that. I have no boast in that. This was all from the Lord. It's all from him. He's going to go on he says this. He says, uh, uh, Woe to me if I don't preach it. Verse 17, If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily... I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. So he says, basically, if I go and I'm willing and I have a good attitude and I just go, this is what God's called me to do and I'm so excited and I get to preach the gospel and it's good news, he goes, there's a reward for me. And he says, or if I don't do it and I just do it because I have to and I'm commissioned, that's how ministry is sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes you minister just because you're excited to minister and you want to be doing it and it's really cool and sometimes you have to because it's got to get done. And, you know, we have verses about that where James talks about, like, what what kind of love is it? What kind of faith is it? If a brother comes to you and says, I'm I'm cold and I'm hungry, and you say, oh, God bless you, be warm and filled, and you close the door. And it's kind of a funny illustration, but, you know, we can do that sometimes. We get some sort of communique that we didn't want or, you know, whatever it might be. Something comes up and we don't want to do it. But Paul makes the point, he says, look, there's a reward if I do it voluntarily, but if I don't and I just do it because I'm supposed to, then I'm still being faithful, I'm still discharging, I'm still doing what God has called me to do. Then he follows up with verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge, and so make full use of my rights. Excuse me, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So he says, look, whether it's voluntarily or not voluntarily, I have there is there's a reward voluntarily, and it's this it's that I get to make the gospel free. And that's a very good model. Remember, while he's in Corinth, at least for a while, he's getting paid by the ministry. So he's not saying he never got paid by the ministry. He's still talking about the fact that he was able to make the gospel free to the Corinthians. For a while, he made tents. When he first moved there, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers, and he lodges with them, and they make tents together. That's how he begins to do it. When Timothy and Silas show up, he no longer makes tents with them anymore. And whether it was a gift from Macedonia or whether it was they worked and paid his way, we don't know, but they, he was able to minister full time. So Paul is just making this point that in his calling, he was always able to uh, make the gospel free to them, that he was never making money from them, that his motivation was never a wrong motivation. It was always to make the gospel free. So it's it's an attitude and a concept for us to realize about people that we you know we may support in the work. You know some places like if you were to go to really anywhere in the EU, uh, including France or England, if you try to immigrate there to start a church, you can't work there for five years. You know the United States' immigration is actually incredibly lenient. If you try to start, if you were to say, you know what. I want to start a church in England right now. You would have to show England that you have five years' worth of wages, either in, con- in conjunction with you're supported by someone who's actually approved by England, and then you'd have to go there and be able to present to them, I will get this much money a month. It comes from this organization, because they don't accept, like, oh, I have all these donors. No, it has to be from an organization, and you have to show that they can pay you, and then you can live there for five years and you cannot work unless you have some sort of specialty. So there are times where you might go somewhere and you might want to be ministering and you just can't work. You have to be supported to do it. And so he's, it's perfectly fine. Like we embrace that model, right? We don't go, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe it. And so also a lot of times with the, when the, the things of of. You know, for in our church, we have a midweek study. We have a, the Sunday morning. We have a lot of things that, honestly, if I was working a full-time job, and for a lot of years, I did work a part-time job. I worked at Box K Tuesdays and Wednesdays for a couple of years. I worked for Medics Ambulance for a couple of years, did things through the years to be able to support us and, and you know, through the time. Uh, but now that I can work here full-time, it opens up a lot more options, whether it's personal meetings or, you know, more teaching opportunities or things like that. So it's it's a... It's just uh, kind of a fact or a dynamic, however you like to call it, that works out in church. We'll go on. He says he didn't use the rights. He says uh, he's not going to take money from them for the sake of the gospel. And then he says there's a great reward in doing it that way because he's able to offer it for free, the gospel for free. Then he says in verse 19, he's going to change gears again. He says, though I am free... And belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became, under, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I myself not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. So Paul, and maybe not shifting gears, but that's a poor way to put it, but in a a conclusionary idea, he says this. Again, linking this back with chapter eight and all through chapter nine, he says, look, though I am free from all and belong to no one, so guess what? Constitutionally, in the U.S., you're free from all, right? Biblically, after your salvation, you're free from all. Paul says, I don't owe anybody anything. I don't belong to anyone. And he says, even though that that's who I am, my right, his rights as a, as a person, they're a little bit different than a Roman. <laughs> He's a Roman citizen. But he says, I don't owe anybody anything. But he says, even though I don't owe anybody anything, I make myself a slave to everyone. That really grinds us. It can, though, can it? We go. I don't know about that. That's some crazy talk right there. And the word doulos here, so it's a Greek word, and it's the word he uses most often when he uses the word slave. If you go back and you look at a lot of the the uh, introductory. Um, our introductions to his letters, it'll say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or he'll say, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And it's that word, doulos. And it literally means there's some translations, render, I, think the, I think the Darby translation renders it um, bond-slave or bond-servant in other translations. So that's a, a Greek word that's a reference back to a Hebrew idea. And it's the idea, so it's in, in, in the Jewish law, there's really no social safety nets, Right? So if someone is uh, destitute, having trouble, these type of things, they can't, there's no central government office to go and get help or something like that. And there were different things like you could collect from a field and different things like that, but that may not be enough to feed your family and so forth. So as, a, as a, anybody could do it. You could be a man or a woman. But typically as a, a father, if you're doing poorly, your family's starving, you go to, say, your neighbor, who's like this incredible botanist and farmer, and they just you know, they have this incredible harvest and you can't seem to grow anything. And you could go to them and you could say, I will sell myself to you as an indentured servant in exchange for me selling myself to you. And there were laws about it. They couldn't mistreat you. They, I mean, there's a lot of laws around it in the, in the law. And, they, and you would sell yourself to them and you could only be sold for a maximum of seven years, one day short of seven years. And then every seven years, every single person was to be released from their servitude. But in exchange for my servitude, that person would take care of my family. They would make sure my family was fed and sheltered and all those different things. That was how the social safety net worked in Israel. But if I decided, I was like, man, this guy treats me so good. He's so kind, and he's taking care of my family so well. And man, I can just, you know what, I'm just going to lump my land in with his land, and I just want to keep on serving this guy. You could do that. And it was called a bondservant. And what you would do is you'd go to the elders of that particular village, your village, and you would say, my master takes care of me, and I don't ever want to not serve him. I want to serve him for the rest of my life. And so the elders would take you to the front of his house. They'd stick your ear up against the doorpost, and they would drive an awl through your ear and pin you to the doorpost. Thanks. That's great. And they would put a gold ring in. And so the gold ring represented the kindness of your master and that you were a bond slave, that you would never be released from your servitude, and that person would always take care of your family. And so when you went to the market or any place like that, you're going to a bazaar. If you went to the temple for mandatory feasts, people wouldn't see that gold ring and they knew exactly what it meant, that you serve someone who was an incredibly kind person. So that's the word that he uses. So over and over again, Paul says, I'm a doulos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a willing servant of the most kind master that's ever been. But in this case, he says, I make myself a doulos of everyone. But I like his reality because he says that I might save some. Some people will not appreciate that. Some people will not care that you're serving them. Some people will not care that you're kind to them. Some people just don't want to be helped. And it just is what it is. But this concept and this, man, are we even willing for this? Are we even willing? This is something that's so easy just to read and go, that was good for Paul. God bless you in that. But do we really believe that this is a a, a real scenario for life? Do we really believe? That doesn't mean like I subject myself to everyone for abuse or I give away everything I ever have. We're not saying that. We're saying that we take every opportunity that we can and we look at people over and over again, as the New Testament says, as more excellent than ourselves. That we can look at another human being and say, you're more important than me. We can look at them and say, I'm willing to serve you for the sake of Christ. I'm willing to pour out my life for you. In Philippians, Paul says, I pour out my life like a drink offering. It's oil or wine. It was over sacrifices, certain sacrifices that the priest would pour oil and wine on the sacrifice while it was already burning on the altar. And Paul says, if my life is poured out like a sacrifice, like a drink offering, then it's it's good. That's what I looked for. And so we just need to honestly ask ourselves, are we even willing for that? And if the answer is no, let's be real about it. If the answer is yes, let's be real about it. But if the answer is no, I'm not willing to do that, we need to ask ourselves why. Why are we not willing to do that? If that's what Jesus said, right? If Jesus told us to take up our cross daily, literally grab the most painful implement of death, of the death penalty that there is, and carry it every day. Clearly, he was not saying literally, you need to make yourself a cross, and then you need to carry it around. He was saying that we would daily be willing to be lifted up for his sake, that we would be willing to die painful deaths. Not just, not just in like the romantic idea of being a martyr, like, oh, someday I'll run out for the faith and everybody will just be like, oh, that guy's so faithful. Not something weird like that. Honestly, I think that would be the easy part. I think the hard part is are we willing to love the people we don't? Are we willing to agape the people that wrong us? Are we willing to say, I'll go the extra mile so that this person can know Jesus? Are we willing to say, I'll be, I'm willing to lay down myself so they can hear the gospel for free? And if the answer is no, then the next question is, what do you think is better than that? Or what do I think is better than that? What is better than what Jesus said? Is it better to ignore God's people? Is that what's better? Is it better to strive for something that I think will gratify me, whether it be booze or drugs or Netflix or relationships or sex or whatever it might be? Is it better to pursue, to, to pursue those things? Will I will, really get to the end of my life and see Jesus and think to myself, doggone it, I wish I had focused more on myself. Heaven is such a waste. And so are you, Jesus. So is your fellowship. I can't believe I wasted my life on you. I don't think any of us will say that. I don't think anybody will see the risen Christ and think to themselves, what a waste. It would have been way better if I kept pursuing the things I know in the end don't help me and don't satisfy me. But isn't that what we do? We do it in small ways, though. We do it when we rage on people. We elevate ourselves because I'll be better off if I judge and rage. We do it in small ways by maybe not helping people that we could because we say, it'd be better to be off if I sat on my couch rather than going out and doing that. We make small decisions. And we say, I'm not not your servant. (laughs) Who do you think you are? I'm not your servant. How could you treat me that way? And Paul is saying, look, I've laid down my life. Now, we know he wasn't perfect, right? Because he told us in, 1 Corinthians, or in Romans chapter 7, he makes the point. He says, the good that I want to do, I never do that. But the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I always find myself doing. Ironically, he says, that's what I practice. That is my practice. The, the bad that I don't want to do is actually what I literally practice. And so we know he was a work in progress just like we are. So this might seem a little bit under, overwhelming. If you're here today and you think to yourself, "I don't want that life," it can be really overwhelming, and you could go out of here thinking like, "Well, that's not really possible. I don't think it's real." There's a part of me that longs for that because I know that the eternal things of God are incredible, but there's another part of me that says, "No way. It'll hurt too much. It would hurt too. It would cost too much to actually follow Christ." And the reality is that you address it with baby steps. It's great to have a commitment or get rebaptized or whatever and have a big moment. Big moments are wonderful, right? But you have to have some sort of moment. You have to make some sort of decision. Paul puts it this way. It's interesting. This is what he says. In verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? The analogy there is not only one person <laughs> goes to heaven or something crazy. So don't make some weird analogy out of that. He's just making the point that effort produces Reward. That's all he's saying, right? Effort produces reward. So he goes on by saying, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, so the games took place just a few miles outside of Corinth, the the Greek games. So everybody would have been familiar with this idea. He says there, everyone who competes in the games goes into the strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. He says, I don't meander. I don't just walk around. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Remember, this is the prize. This is not salvation. He's already saved, but he's trying to walk in what God has for him. To receive the fruit of it. And remember previously he said so that I might experience the blessings of the gospel. I may be a fellow partaker of it. Now he's saying that I want to run in such a way that I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Not salvation. He says there, uh, uh, noting he makes a couple examples. Verse 26. I don't run like someone running aimlessly. So he has direction in his life. This is a real key to take the steps to begin to walk with Jesus if that's not where you're at today. Or if it is where you're at today and you want to walk more with Jesus, like probably all of us here, where he says, look, you pick a direction. You have to have your eye on something. Where am I going? What is my goal? Probably to love God and love one another, which is a broad goal. But when I see things in my life that are contradictory to that, right, our whole, man, it's, there is nothing, there's no media. Well, I don't know. I, I don't have like angel channel or whatever, but for the most part, There's no cable media. There's no internet media. There's no news cycle that's going to promote the values of Jesus. They don't exist. And so when you see in your life something that's not valuable, or I see in my life something that is unvalued by God, maybe I'm rude to someone. And God says, no, that's exactly what I don't value. When the Holy Spirit brings that up to me, I can, I can take a step in the right direction. I can say, you know what? That was rude. I could do something crazy. I could apologize to someone. I could say, you know what? I treated you poorly. I misrepresented Jesus. Please forgive me for that. I don't want to treat you that way. I could say that to my spouse. I could say that to my kids. I could say that to my barista. Right? I'm sorry. It's a small step, but all of a sudden it's taking up my cross. Because self-will says, no, I don't have to apologize for anything. You did X, Y, and Z, so you deserved A, B, and C. Right? That's that's the old nature. That's the, the world and the sinful nature. So it doesn't have to be this huge, overwhelming thing. We just want to run in such a way that we're not being aimless. We want to respond to the Spirit. The next thing he says is this. He says, uh, as a boxer, he says, I don't fight like one beating the air. The idea is I don't just swing wildly in my life. I'm not just swinging wildly. What's swinging wildly in your life? I'm just going to throw this example out. Sometimes, have you ever been wrapped up with the will of God? And one day, the will of God is to start this business. And then the next day, the will of God is to do this. And then the next day, the will of God is to do this. And the next day it's this, this, and this. You're, you're... I, someday we'll sit down and do some biblical teachings on the will of God because I am convinced it's significantly simpler than that. I don't think it's all about seeking the sign, seeking the, 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 you know, the eagle feather from Mount Shasta of what you have to do or seeing the sunrise and two birds cross or you know, whatever, just the weird stuff we come up with. And that's how I knew that I'd marry her. You, know? you go, no way, I've heard it. It happens. Instead, all of a sudden, we can go to following God 101, where I don't need a dove to fly out of a bush. I can just know I shouldn't be rude. That just took care of probably like 50% of the battles of my day. I should be kind. I already know the heart of God. I don't have to pray. Dear Jesus, should I be a complete jerk today and make sure I get what I want? I don't have to pray about it, do I? I don't have to seek the Lord about it. I don't have to wonder about it. I don't, none of it. And that really extends to a lot of things, even like job opportunities. If I take this job, this will be the fruit of it. If I take this job, this will be the fruit of that. Both will have their struggles. It is what it is. I don't have to see a rainbow fall upon the place where I might work. So there's a a simplicity here of just, I'm going to make sure that every swing I take, there's a purpose to it. I don't, have to, I don't have to be consciously wondering, oh, no, there's a purpose to it. Does this accomplish the purpose? And then Paul finally says this, I buffet my body. Again, the word there in Greek is soma. It's not just, he's like, the, and this is where some of the monks of old got their idea of kind of self-punishment, whether whipping or hitting themselves. It's not what he's saying. Soma, it's person. I buffet my person. Not just, I, 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 you know, I have a tummy ache and I make sure I go to church. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is my person. My old nature, my emotions, all that I am, I buffet it. I don't let it take over what the Spirit wants to do in my life. That's what he's saying. And so again and again and again. That's, and that's what Christianity is, isn't it? Every day is deciding, am I going to do what I know God wants me to do? I don't have to worry about going to Africa or anything like that. I don't have to worry about any weird thing. I can just get up every morning and go, There's a few things I know God wants me to do. I know he wants me to love the people that are close to me, that can become easy to despise because I know all the bad stuff about them. I don't have to, I already know. He wants me to love them. He wants me to take care of them. I already know he wants me to to love the fallen and the the downtrodden, the people that have wronged me, the people that I don't think deserve love. He wants me to love them. I don't have to pray about that. He wants me to serve everybody around me. He wants me to serve my wife. He wants me to serve my children. He wants me to serve my church. He wants me to serve my coworkers. It doesn't mean I bring them all a glass of cold water. It just means that I'm there for, for, I'm available. I'm available. I can be mistreated and I don't have to revile back. I can ask what's wrong instead. You're pretty mad right now. I'm sorry if I offended you. Is everything okay? Can I help with something? I could humble myself. The Proverbs say a gentle word turns away wrath. And where there's no kindling, a fire goes out. We can stop amazing conflicts by just humbling ourselves, like Jesus did, right? At the end of the day, he said this. He said, one of the fruits we get is to present the gospel freely. And the gospel is exactly what we've been talking about. It's that Jesus Christ came from God. He's the God-man. And what happened at Calvary is pretty miraculous. Jesus Christ actually sacrificed his blood, was judged by God for my sin and for your sin. See, so he actually humbled himself. He died that we should live. He paid what we owed God. Every, all the immorality, all the thoughts, all the domination, all the anger, all the hate, all those things that lurk in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls, he paid for that. He said, you know what, Father, don't judge James for that hatred. Don't judge James for despising people. Judge me for it. And so he shed his blood for our sin. What that means is that our righteous father was satiated, meaning we don't owe him anything anymore because Jesus paid it all. So the cross isn't about the beginning of journey of religious solitude and difficulty. The cross is a clean slate of forgiveness that leads into an opportunity and in an invitation of life with Jesus. So what we're talking about today that we buffet our bodies or we say no to ourselves is not to gain our salvation or gain our forgiveness. That was all accomplished in Christ It's to move closer and closer and closer to God to develop that relationship on the outside might seem sometimes like it's not worth it or we don't care or it's too hard to get there but the reality is as David tells us in the Psalms taste and see that the Lord is good and so what is our opportunity this morning no matter where we're at if you don't know Jesus your opportunity is to cry out to him and say I need that forgiveness I need your resurrection power. I need this Holy Spirit of my life to, to cleanse me, to change me. If you're a believer and you're not interested in walking with Jesus, this is your time, your morning to say, I don't know why, but I'm not interested in walking with you. I think your stuff is lame. I think that if I go with you, I'll miss out on life. And I don't know how to, how to quantify or, or add up and, and reckon that you're actually worth following. Show me who you are. The Lord says, if anyone seeks me early, he'll find me. And if you're here today and you're following Jesus and you're just like, man, I just want more of Jesus, then you just keep swinging in a way that matters. You keep walking in the direction you're going. You don't worry about all the, the big questions of life. What about my spouse or what this, that? There's, there's a million questions. You don't have to be in, in anxiety over them because he sees you and he knows you. You're not lost to him. It's not as if somehow you, you, you don't matter to him. He sees you right where you're at, and he loves you. And so it is just for us to continue walking with purpose, if that's where we are this morning. You will never be disappointed with Jesus, never. Sometimes we have to wait for him, but we'll never be disappointed. So we have a meal. I invite you to come and... Eat with us. If you'd like prayer, come on up afterwards. We'd be glad to pray with you. God's got great things for you, every one of you. And uh, we'll pray. Father, thank you for your word and the promises that we have through our brother Paul, through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for truth. Thank you for your love and your kindness. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to be real with you and honest with you. And I pray that you would change our lives. Lord, I pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit this week. pray for opportunities for us to to show the love of Christ to people, to care for people, to minister to people, to be slaves to people in order that they might be saved. Lord, thank you for this example we, we saw in Jesus, this example we see in Paul and many, many others of your servants. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the intrinsic eternal value of having a life given to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you guys.